Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Andrew. I'm uh, one of the ministers here. And yes, we're continuing our series looking at the short letter of 1 Peter. Uh, I'll fill you in. We've only missed one week, and that was all about our salvation. And it's okay if you missed it, because Peter moves on to talk about how we should live but he still doesn't move very far away from talking about our salvation. That's because for how we live now as elect exiles in this world is still very much tied into our salvation. Before moving on to some specifics later in this letter, Peter lays out in our passage four main areas for us in how we're to think and act in light of our salvation, in light of who we are now in Christ. But first, I'll pray and ask for some help. Heavenly Father, help us to understand your word. Help us to see the greatness of our salvation in your Son, and help us to live in a way that aligns with how we are to be your children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, the main idea I want us to think about is what is the grounding, what is the grounding thing of your actions and your behavior? What drives you? What is at the base of your motivations and your actions? Our culture has no real ground on why it says we should live in a certain way. It doesn't really have a justification as to why something is good or something is bad. We seem to have an ethic that is based on the goodness of people and on a general consensus of the majority. And I think that's kind of strange, as it comes from a strange understanding about who we are as people. Rousseau, from the 18th century, he has dramatically shaped the West's way of thinking about ethics. His basic idea is that humans are naturally good and free and uncorrupted. Rousseau wrote a book called Confessions, and in that he talked about stealing pears as a youth. And the reason he did this wasn't because he needed them, but because he was peer pressured into doing it. In this sense, we see that it was society that was corrupting his ways. You see, being in a community provokes envy and hatred and lying and competition of each other. And he would say, in our own natural state, our free state, we do not feel these things. But when we have relations to each other, that's when restrictions and shame and punishment is put on people. And you may see this today, peer pressure is a real thing, which is why any good parent of teenagers asks their kid two questions before going out. The first is, where are you going? And the second one is, who are you going with? But you might also find the corrupting nature of society in the workplace, where you might be doing something just fine, but when someone comes along doing the same task, there might be envy or comparison or competition between the two. The effect of having more people around can corrupt your mindset and actions. 
But the main problem with Rousseau and this dominating idea that we have today is that he was an idiot. Let's not mention the observational bias that he and everyone who agreed with about how good and pure they are is. Rousseau was also trying to rip off Augustine. Augustine, in the fourth century, he wrote a book called Confessions. And in that book, he talked about stealing apples as a youth. And in that, he didn't want the apples. They didn't even taste good when he stole them. But there was something inside him that just enjoyed the idea of eating stolen apples. And that's why he did it. Rousseau blamed society for corrupting people as he thought left to our own people would do good. Augustine blamed his own internal desires corrupting him and he needed an external change for him to do good. Ethics in a Christian context begins with the belief in the depravity of humans and their need for repair and restoration. Because Adam took God's credit card and put it in the negative, we are all born in his debt. We all need a new shot at life. And only once have we been given a new life can we live a new life. And Peter, in our passage, rests everything on our salvation as a basis for our ethics, as a basis for our mindset and our behavior. Belief about God undergirds belief about what is right and wrong and how we are to behave. And in our passage today, Peter points out in four areas where our salvation affects our mindset and behavior. And at the end of this talk, I'm going to circle back to what is permanent against what is perishable. So the first one of these four is hope. And that's how our passage starts off today. In verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober... Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. We are to roll up the sleeves of our mind and to get to work thinking about Jesus' return. We may sometimes forget, but Jesus is coming back and one day we will see him face to face. This is not a distant dream, but a certain reality. He is going to come back and we will be his forever. And thinking about the future grace that awaits us will give us hope in this world and affect how we see the present. We are saved, but the ultimate end, our inheritance that cannot be taken away, hasn't been fully realized yet. We can live with an undivided confidence in our salvation and not default into trusting in ourselves or money or education or the government to bring about anything of lasting value. Our hope is in Jesus' return. Some years ago, a hydroelectric dam was to be built across a valley in New England in America. There was people in a small town in the valley and they were to be relocated because it would be submerged when the dam would be finished. During the time of the decision to build the dam and the completion, the buildings in the town, which were previously kept up nicely, fell into disrepair, and the town became a little bit of an eyesore. 
as one resident said, where there is no faith in the future, there is no work in the present. As we think about the future, we can have this living hope right now and live in such a way to show the world our hope. This hope can be shown in some hard ethical choices that Peter will ask his readers to do later, to do with governments and masters and accusers. This hope affects how we are to do good, even to those who do not like us. For knowing the fixed, certain, final, completed outcome will help us with our resolve to live and do good in the bumpy present. The second thing that Peter asks of his readers is to be holy because God is holy. Verses 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. We are to be obedient children and are to put away our old family habits as we are now in a new family. You may have heard the phrase, like father, like son. As God's children, we are to be like our father who is holy. How we conduct ourselves shows who we are dedicated to and what our influences are. We once lived a certain way, but now after being born again, we may need to be, there may need to be new adjustments in the way we live. And family influence is a big thing. Our own upbringing shape who we are and the things that we do. I grew up on tank water. This meant having running water in our house was a no-no. We all had to have short showers. This family influence of mine came to light early in my marriage. In my family, the kettle would always be full. This is because when you would go to wash up in the kitchen sink and you turn on the hot tap, it's not immediately hot. You have to run the water a little bit for it to get warm. Well, in my house, you would collect that water in the kettle because it would just be a waste, right? And this would annoy Hannah to no end because when she wanted a tea, she would have to wait for the full kettle to boil instead of just boiling a cup's worth of water. In my old house, you could just use the microwave to heat up one cup of water, it would be quicker. But there's no way in Hannah's house you would, you, you would do that. The kettle was for tea water. There was a family clash going on based on how we had been brought up. That had to be a bit of a readjustment in how we were to get along as a new family. And we are a little bit like that. We are to be like our Heavenly Father. We have been born again into this new family. We don't live to the evil desires we once had. Instead, he calls us to be holy because we are now holy in Christ, because he called us to follow him. So we now are to be obedient children and to be holy, for God is holy. And being holy doesn't just mean we need to perform some sort of special religious practice but it means a whole life change from the world. We are to be different, strange even, to the world around us. We live in a way that reflects the same characteristics of God. He does not lie. 
He is slow to become angry, full of mercy and abounding in love. Christians are to live in the world on the terms God prescribes, one restrained by sin, one that reflects their calling. This is quite clear. Our salvation is to affect how we are to live. And we are to live with the same characteristics of God, which will separate us from the world. Even if the activities are the same in our world, our motivation is different. For our actions, we are to remember who God is. The third thing Peter tells his people to do is to fear God. As we remember that God is Father, we also need to remember that God is Judge. Verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. It is important for us to remember who God is and to display the proper reverence that God deserves. God is creator and sustainer of all things and so will be the just judge of everyone he has made. And we are in a new family We have new responsibilities. Each person will one day have to give an account to God who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So we are to live out our time knowing this place is not the end. Living as foreigners or temporary residents here, we fear God. And that doesn't mean to live in abject terror or dread or anxiety, but rather a healthy human response before an altogether different kind of perfect and all-powerful being, who we are going to be with when our temporary visas on this earth come to an end. A confident driver still has a healthy fear of an accident which prevents them from taking risks on the road, and a healthy fear of judgment or a healthy knowledge about who the judge is can help us to know that we are still to live in a certain way, loving and obeying God now that we have been saved. Jesus bore our sins so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. We are to live a new way apart from sin, for God is both Father and Judge. And the last thing in this passage that Peter points out in how we are to live is that we are to love one another deeply. And I think this is another kind of like father, like son thing. For since we have been shown love, we are to show love too. Verse 22. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. I think I was in two life groups this week and I did this passage one-on-one with someone else and this is a sticky verse. The start of this verse may bring up some questions about how we are saved. Aren't we saved by Jesus and not by our own works? Here it says our obedience to the truth has purified us. What does that mean? I think this verse is talking about salvation and it is in the past tense. They are not to be purifying themselves. They have already been purified. 
Peter is talking about conversion is not telling his readers to keep on cleaning their souls, but reminding them that they have already done so. And how did this salvation come about, this purification come about? By obeying the truth, which I think means they responded to the gospel. Peter has already addressed these readers as those who believe in God. Even the verse before this, he calls them those who put their faith and hope in him. And three other times in this letter, unbelievers are described as those who disobey the message, who do not obey the word, and those who do not obey the gospel. Peter seems to talk about obeying the word as a descriptor of belief, of what we might call belief, because belief leads to action. So those who do obey the word or who obey the truth that was preached to them are those who are already saved. Believers are called to do a number of things like repent, believe, be baptized, confess their sins to be saved. Not everyone by default goes to heaven because of Jesus. They're still the chosen group who call out to Christ for salvation. Those who believe in him and obey him. Because coming to faith is more than an intellectual event. It results in transformation. And in verse 22, it, is directly tie, it directly ties salvation to loving one another. Paul might say, faith works through love. And love comes from a sincere faith. We have been shown God's love, so we are to show each other love. We can do this because we know who we are under God. Knowing who we are under God means we know who we can be in society around us. I want people to look on St. Matt's and see people there living some alternative lifestyle, one where we each show deep love for each other. Love for each other is a way that can set ourselves apart from the world. It's putting others' needs ahead of our own. It's not trying to exit that awkward conversation after church with that person you kind of think is a bit awkward. It's bringing people's meals. It's being available to help that person move or to give them that lift. It's doing that one thing for that one person that no one will ever know about. It's putting in those extra, lives for life, extra hours for life group prep or catching up with that person in our community buying them a coffee and asking them how they really are. In all of these areas we have looked at, hope, holiness, fear of God, and love for one another, the motivation for a Christian to do all these things is that of our salvation. The world may assume and even behave in some overlapping way, but our motivation for this way of life is different. It is grounded in Jesus and what he has done and will do. And we have confidence, for this is not a fad, but permanent and for all time. And the way we look to the future is grounded in the past, so we know how to live now. Paul stretches out our own timeline to go beyond ourselves for us to see beyond the possibly hard moments in the present. For there's a contrast in this passage. Uh, there's a contrast in this passage on those things that are temporary and those things that will last, on the perishable 
and the permanent. In verse 18 and 19, it says, For you know that it was, it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. In our passage, it says we were not redeemed or paid to be released by the worth of silver or gold. Gold was not precious enough for us to be redeemed. The value of gold was not enough to pay off our debts incurred. Instead, we were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. In our world, a thing is worth as much as someone's willing to pay for it. That's why we have ridiculous house prices. But we also see this in things like Pokemon cards or artworks. My sister, she went to Hawaii earlier this year and she bought a belt that was worth 900 Australian dollars. I own two suits, one I wore to my wedding. Combined, those two suits are not worth $900. But if someone is willing to pay for that, then that is what it is worth. And Peter says, we have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. He has done it. It has happened and you can't change the past. So we can have hope in the future for he has already paid the price for us. And that price was blood. That is how important you are, how costly you are to God. He paid it in full. He was willing to sacrifice himself for you. And we believe in the same God that raised him from the dead. Our hope isn't a dead one, but a living one. Jesus is alive and coming back. May we be alert and mindful and hopeful of seeing Jesus and receiving his gift of eternal life. And as we look back and forward along our longer timeline, there is another permanent thing in our passage, another thing that can give us assurance in the past. Verse 23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. God's word is permanent. It was relevant 700 years before Peter wrote this letter, which to us is also itself 2,000 years old. God's enduring word saves people. It enables people who hear its message to be born again. It was preached to the original readers that Peter is writing to, and it saved them. And it's the same message that is preached to people today. Peter even uses God's word to show that God's word endures forever. Leaning on Isaiah, he says, all people are like grass. We grow and we wither. And this may sound a little depressing, but the contrast is that the word of the Lord endures forever. And the word of the Lord gives us new life. The word of the Lord tells us that we have been purchased by the precious blood of Christ. The word of the Lord gives us hope for the future because of what Jesus has done for us in the past. So as we live in the now, may we have hope in the future, trusting him in his word that gives life and endures forever.
Oops. I lost a slide. Steam trains are powered by shoveling coal into furnaces to heat up the boiler. Cars go forward using petrol for energy. You have to keep charging your Tesla for it to move. The Christian life is fueled by the gospel. It is the reason why we behave in such a way. Our society may approve in what you do as a Christian as you live your life, loving those around you, working hard and doing good. There may be some things that people around you may be surprised with, like how you don't hold a grudge, how you own up to mistakes quickly, and you're quick to forgive. I hope they can see the hope that you have, the assurance you have knowing that God is going to return, that you have been born again, that you have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Have great confidence in this. Would you be willing to tell those who notice your behavior the reason for the hope that you have? Someone may ask why you are so nice, and the default response may be something like, well, it seems like the right thing to do. Would you perhaps take it a little bit further and say something like, well, as a Christian, I think it's the right thing to do. Our world doesn't have a good basis for how to conduct yourself. And even if it did, it wouldn't be built on something so permanent as Jesus' blood or God's word. It sort of picks and chooses what actions are good and bad and goes through phases all the time. May we live in a way to show the world the truth of our message as we live our lives motivated by the good news about Jesus. Are you a holiday planner? Having a date or a destination in mind can give you something to look forward to. As you plan, you may look at what's in the area, what sites and activities are there. As Christians, we have a destination and we are slowly moving there. May we be fully alert to this journey and conscious of the end destination. May we have this longer time frame mindset as we think to, to past our own past to Jesus and beyond our own future to Jesus' coming back again. May we look to God and his holy character and have hope and confidence in God's word, which will not fade, but endures forever. Amen.